We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, this is the True Faith Patron Podcast. It's the ProView with Mark, Corby and Keith Gillespie. This is the first of a four-part special on Keith's career. I don't know how many of you listening to this would have read Keith's autobiography, but we're going to go through quite a lot of what's in there. So if you haven't read it and you like what you're hearing, then I recommend you go out and buy it. Um, absolute pleasure to be joined by you both. I hope you're both doing well. All good. Yeah. Yep, all good. All good, mate. Glad to hear it. Um, we'll crack on then, Keith. Um, I guess we'll call this part one. And we may as well start with with your arrival at, at Man United. Obviously, um, schoolboy forms... 91, I believe. Um, let, let's just talk about how, how old you were when you first arrived, You know what it felt like, your, your impressions of the lads and your peer group, um, relationship with Fergie, just anything that you, you want to go into. And, and a personal one, obviously, in the book, you give you give the impression that Robbie Savage is actually a really sound lad. So it'd be interesting to know if you think that he's, he's media persona is just all one big act. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I mean, I, the first time I went to Man United, I was 13, um, and I was quite fortunate the club wanted to sign me then, straight away. So I um, I signed schoolboy forms um, on my 14th birthday then, um, and then with a guaranteed apprenticeship to, to move over when I was 16. Um, so I, I made the move then in July 1991, and... You know, this was uh, this was the start of me, you know, trying to make it as a professional footballer. And you know, there's no bigger club than than Man United to to go and try and achieve that. Um, you know, with a manager like Alex Ferguson, who was you know incredible in terms of you know bringing us all through. You know, because uh, you know I was very fortunate that I was part of that class of '92 with um, you know some incredible players. Uh, boys who, some boys in there who spent their entire career at Man United. You know, you look at uh, Gary Neville and Paul Scholes, uh, Ryan Giggs, um, Nicky Bott, who, as we know, came to Newcastle also. Um, uh, Rob Savage, as we mentioned. Um, you know, it was just a you know incredible group of players that, that came through at once, um, and you know we we all sort of got our chances at uh, at some stage, but. Yeah, you know, it was very daunting leaving home. You know, you're sort of thrust into the into the big bad world, and um, it, it's up to you to go and uh, try and uh, you know kneel down. A, first of all, you want to get into the youth team, and then obviously impressed to, to try and get into reserve football, and then ultimately first team football. So I was um, I was very fortunate that um, 
my first season went went pretty well. Um, we obviously won the youth cup and um, into my second season, um, just after um, New Year as a seventeen year old, I made my, my first team debut. So, you know, the surreal thing for me looking back was, you know, eighteen months previous to that, I was I was still at school and um, it was just a, you know, incredible to sort of think back on that and. The game itself, we won 2-0. I managed to, to put a cross in for the first goal and scored the second. So, you know, as debuts went, it couldn't have gone any better. But, yeah, it was um, it was a daunting time, um, you know. And as, as I mentioned before, I was um, – I think we were all quite fortunate in a way, the, the class of 82, because we all sort of helped each other on because we were part of, um, you know, such a special team at the time. I think um, just to sort of pause a little bit, I mean – just to sort of go from a Newcastle perspective, um, Man United, when you joined, I think they may have just won the FA Cup. Um, they may have won the European Cup Winners' Cup around about that time, Keith? Yeah, I, th- I think, well, the FA Cup was 1990. Yeah. Um, that's the one that people talked about that uh, I think Mark Robbins scored in the third yeah. round and everyone talks about that was the goal that... Um, that saved Alex Ferguson's job at, at Old Trafford, and you know, lo and behold, look what he goes out to achieve after that. You know, so um, absolutely incredible. Yeah, and then I think 1991 they beat Barcelona That's in right. the final of the the it was European Cup Winners Cup. Then, so yeah, I just joined just after that um, in in the in the summer. It's it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because the, the Fergie had started winning uh, trophies before the class of '92 uh, sort of come to fruition. She would say. Yeah. But you, you you did also see the likes of um, Lee Sharp in particular, Russell Biedsmo, uh, Robbins, as you mentioned, Lee Martin, who scored the, the winner in the cup. Yeah. I mean, was that part of um, a key decision for you joining Man United, based on the fact that you knew you were going to get, be given a, a decent opportunity to get the first team, or were you not thinking that far ahead? No, I, I don't think you can you can get too carried away. You know, you're obviously going there to. To try and eventually make it to the first team, but one thing I think Alex Ferguson set out to do when he, when he joined the club in 1986 was just a complete overall uh, overhaul of um, the recruitment of, of of the young players and and how he seen that. And you know, as you mentioned there, he'd already give quite a few players, young players, the chance. Um, you know, you mentioned Lee Martin and Lee Sharp and Ryan Giggs, obviously as well. Um, Russell Beardsmore. There was quite a few others around that time as well who. Who got a few games as well, but not, you know, too many. But um, you know, it was um, it was something that you know, I, I, my family trusted me going there because they, they met Alex Ferguson and uh, they trusted you know that if I mean if you're if you're if you're good enough, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter what age you are, um, and you only have to look in terms of the um, the squad that came through that class of '92. I mean, how much money did? <laughs> Did those players save the club in, in the long term? You know, with you know, if you were to go out and buy a Paul Scholes or out and buy a Ryan Giggs or a Gary Neville, you know, they saved them the, the club millions. And you know, that's why it's so, so important to have a good youth setup where you do have players coming through. Absolutely, the um, the youth setup element is really interesting. And again, this is this is something I picked up in your book, Man you Obviously, they had young players coming through, but there was also an emphasis on you finishing your school studies and they put you on a on a B tech. You said, which obviously, you know, you you yourself in the book say that you can't really remember what it, what it was about. But it's the, it's the mere fact that the that they did that, and and you know, this is what 
25, almost 30 years ago. Yeah. And that's quite forward thinking because I remember, you know, a lot of players would would get, you know, schoolboy forms. They'd be kicked out um, when the schoolboy forms are out and they'd have nothing to fall back on. And, and I think, man, you were almost kind of a, a vanguard in that sense in that they ensured that their players had a, a solid grounding in education just in case things didn't work out. And yeah. I, I think there are still a lot of clubs who don't do that now. And, and I don't know, is that... Is that on so on reflection, is that something that you look back and think, you know what, that was they they were well ahead of their time to a certain extent. Yeah, well, to be fair, um, that was something that you had you had to do, and you know, we went to college, and you know, there was maybe five or six of us went to one college in, in Accrington, uh, and then there was the other boys who, let's say, maybe weren't as as good academically. <laughs> we used to say they went to the Thicko College. Um, so it was like I said, myself, Robbie Savage, you know, Gary Neville, Chris Casper, um, who went to the uh, the one in Accrington, and um, yeah, it was a it was a B Tech course. Uh, as I said in the book, I, I think it's sort of leisure and tourism or something something like that. I've, <laughs> I've no idea. I passed it in the end, like, but um, I've no idea how I did because. Um, it was just a bit of a drag, really, the, the Thursdays when we went there. Um, but you know, it's 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 one of those where you were actually at college, and you know there was people, um, you know, from Man City apprentices, uh, you know, Blackburn, Oldham, and just just all the sort of clubs in that sort of Lancashire area. Um, you know, so we, it's players we would have played against on a on a Saturday. Um, so yeah, it was a it was sort of a nice release at times, you know, rather than. You know, you train Monday, Monday morning, Monday afternoon, same Tuesday, same Wednesday, um, and then you train Friday morning. So the, the Thursday, I suppose, broke it up. Um, into you know, in terms of looking forward to the game on the Saturday, you know, it it give you that wee bit of um, release away from football at times. Although um, there's a lot of times in in digs, and some Robbie Savage shared a room together, and David Beckham, another lad, John O'Kane, would have, would have been just down the road and. In the evenings, we were very bored, and you know they used to have at the at the training ground. Um, our uh, our youth team manager Eric Harrison would have taken sessions for you know younger kids, um, you know sort of like a, a school of excellence type, uh, you know with Man United, and we would have gone down in the evenings and and, uh, and done training as well with them because we were that bored in the digs. Um, so it was important at times. You know, because it can it can get you know very boring living in you know digs life. Um, you're on forty forty six pounds seventy five p a week, and mm-hmm. you know you played on a you played on a Saturday, and uh, it was uh, I think it was maybe four pound win bonus, and <laughs> that four pound was crucial. So it was. Uh, <laughs> well, Abrook seen it as probably more crucial than me, but uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, we we used to go and. To, you know, Salford Snooker Hall. We used to go and play snooker there, just to, you know, just for um, something to do at times because it can get very, you know, tedious living in uh, living in digs. It's it's fascinating hearing this, to be honest, Keith, because uh, it, it, one of the earliest memories I've got is one of my first heroes was uh, Michael O'Neill, who I'm sure you'll be uh, very very familiar with. Uh, when he joined Newcastle back in 1987, uh, part of the condition was he, he had to, he said he wanted to finish his uh, I think it would have been his A levels back then, yeah. and um, they made sure that he was um, doing his training, um, and then he was going to uh, the college in Newcastle to finish it off and. All, all of a sudden, he was fast tracked to the first team because he was 
probably head and shoulders above the strikers we had at the time. That's and right, yeah. uh, lo, lo and behold, he's playing first team football. And uh, people are at college, you know, with a, with a professional footballer in that class. It's it's just surreal. It just goes to show how much football's changed. But uh, just another quick one before we move on, chaps. Um, the class of 92, obviously, we'll, we'll probably speak in more detail. But I always remember, um, I'm sure Norma will, Newcastle's own version of uh, the class of 91, shall we say. Um, I did an article for True Faith probably about five or six years ago now. And it was amazing sort of how much... Um, focus was on the, the youth back then and, and we don't see it now but if you think of the the colour ballot of players that Newcastle brought through back then because you'll be familiar with a yep. lot of them you know Stevie Watson Steve Howie Robbie Elliott Lee Clark and then you, you had the likes of um, Alan Thompson who didn't really make the grade at Newcastle but had a fantastic career you know mm-hmm. um, so it just goes to show how much football's changed and you know as, as we will come to how much if you really focus on your on your academy and your in developing players, how how you can get it right? Absolutely, um, you know it. As I mentioned before, Alex Ferguson, when he came into the club, wanted wanted to um, to start from the from the bottom upwards um, and and just get a whole direction on where he wanted to go. And you know, Man United has has always been a club that has given youth a chance um, and. There's some crazy statistic that um, I forget how many games it is, but there has always been a player who's come through the system for the last, I don't know, 40 odd years who has been named um, in in the first team, you know, uh, squad, yeah. uh, which is, you know, it's something crazy, like 4,000 4, games or something, which is absolutely incredible, you know, so it shows how important, even for a club at, like Man United, who have had, who's got so much resources, you know, it's important to get players, you know, coming through the system. And, you know, the, the, as I mentioned before, the, the class of 92 was, was incredible, how many of those came, or came through to really make the grade. Absolutely, and you've got, um, you know, I mean, I'll digress slightly, but you look at Chelsea now, who had that transfer ban in for a year, ended up bringing through loads of youngsters, and, and they've really benefited from it, but uh, that's that's a discussion for another time in terms of the finance that is a wash in the Premier League now, which stops you a lot of youngsters coming through. Um, so you come through as a, I mean, you were really young when you made your Man U debut, um, and you obviously impress enough uh, to be kept around the squad, and I guess the next big standout moment had to be the um, the victory over Newcastle in which yeah. you played. And, and interestingly enough, you mentioned again that you recall, and I think it might have been with Chris Casper, you recall the atmosphere in the League Cup game which took place only three days earlier, didn't it, before the uh, the league match at Old Trafford on the Saturday. Um, so it'd be interesting to hear your, your recollections of the, the game at St. James's Park, that, um, that man you lost in the League Cup 2-0, and then, obviously, your recollections of that that two 0 win, where not only did you score, um, but you had a brilliant game. And and I'd be really interested in finding out whether you know you your life almost changed overnight um, because all of a sudden, I mean, obviously, I know we don't have the saturation of the internet now, but you're kind of going from a youth team player to a celebrity in a very short space of time. And I wonder if that had any had any impact on you. Yeah, I, th- I think with uh, with the lads who came through class in '82. We pretty much a lot of us, although we played some reserve team games, we, we sort of bypassed the reserves um, because we were, um, you know, thrust straight into to first team squads and, and stuff. Um, you know, and it, the 
the game that I played uh, where I made my debut, um, it was I think it was a Monday or a Tuesday night. I think it might maybe a Tuesday night when we won two nil. Well, the following uh, the following Saturday, I was playing for the youth team again. Um, you know, so Alex Ferguson, you know, wanted to make sure that um, he kept your feet on the ground. Um, you know, so that certainly did that. So, you know, going from scoring at, at Old Trafford in my debut to playing in front of uh, a few hundred fans at the at the training ground the following Saturday um, certainly did that. But um, I, for the remainder of that season, I, I I only had one more appearance. It was in the FA Cup, and uh, I came on a sub, and and we won it. We won again. So. Um, the following season, um, I did go out um, on loan um, to Wigan, um, but my debut was against Sheffield Wednesday, and I had a I had a really good game. And then, yeah, I remember the game against Newcastle in the in the cup, um, which was you know incredible atmosphere up there. And you know, I think we we played most of the, the kids. We had a few a few players played who mm-hmm. you know of the sort of established players. Uh, which is, is is obviously important, and I think bar bar Andy Cole, it was probably Newcastle's strongest side. Um, you know, and we we took them to I think it was eighty two minutes before I think it might have been Big Philippe scored, and then Paul Kitson scored the, the second, um, or vice versa. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was an incredible atmosphere. You know, I I'd never played it. Um, I'd never played it since James's before. Um, I'd I'd played against. Um, Newcastle in the in the cup or sorry in the, in a friendly um, at Ibrox that season in, yes. in pre season. Ah, was and, there, yes, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, 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 John Beresford tells a great story that when he was um, that when he was looking at the team sheet and uh, he's thinking, oh, I've got Konchelskis this week, and he sees the team sheet and he he sees me playing. He's like, who the heck's he? <laughs> and uh, he, he says, he says by by the end of the game, he sort of he knew he knew uh, he knew um, enough then. Um, yeah. But um, I played against him uh, in a Billy Bingham's testimonial as well um, over in Belfast. Um, not long after that, um, and I had a had a really really good game that day. Uh, George Best even came on a sub for us, so that was um, incredible <laughs> feeling. Um, and Newcastle had a strong side out and. You know, it was um, Philippe had just signed, and I, as I said, I had a really good game. And and then we had the the, the cup game uh, where we lost two 0 But then it was only three days later, um, the game in the league, and I, I came on a sub with about thirty minutes to go, and um, managed to managed to score the second, which was um, you know a decent decent goal. We're cut in from the left and and just put it into the, the bottom corner. Uh, but it was something, you know, when later on, when when Newcastle, you know, the, the the transfer came about, it was something that, with the the atmosphere that I experienced that night in the in the cup game, um, you know, something I'll never forget the noise they made, and it was a big big factor, um, in me, you know, joining the club, uh, because I knew what a special place it was to play, and that that was my my first time. When we when we got beaten the cup, so it was a big big factor because I knew how passionate the fans were. I seen it. I'd already seen it when when they played um, at Old Trafford in their first game, their, their first season back in the in the Premiership. And I remember it was a one 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 draw. And they had scored. That was the season you know, Newcastle came third in the league. And um, I remember you know was, I was still like an apprentice then, and I remember watching the game, and I remember the fans behind the goals, just the noise they made, and. 
you know, I can't remember who I was sitting beside at that time, but I was, I was just amazed when we were talking about it. So, you know, things, you know, certain things stick in in your mind, and that was certainly one of them. How uh, how good the atmosphere was, and how good the away fans were at, at Old Trafford that night. I think um, I was at that ga- um, that game in nineteen ninety three with the one one draw, Keith. Um, absolutely electric atmosphere from both sets of supporters. It, it was edgy as well because back then there still was an, an element of hooliganism to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I do remember about this is um, I don't know whether you recall a, a, a gent for Newcastle called Nikos Papavasilou who played for yeah. us for a number of games at the start of that that season. And um, where we were in that corner, um, his brother and I believe Papavasilou's wife or girlfriend was sitting right in front of us. His brother was a split, spitting double of them with that mop of curly hair. <laughs> and when when Andy Cole scored, I've never seen anyone go as mental as his brother did. It was like the veins were pumping out of his neck, his eyes were popping out, eyeballs were popping out. And we just jumped on him as if we well, wait, we're standing with a celebrity here. He's Papa Vasto's <laughs> part of his brother. But that was a false stone because Papa Vasto played about three more games and we'll never see him again, you know. <laughs> but uh, but get, getting back to, um, you know, where, where you come through and really start getting in the public eye that game at, uh, at Old Trafford, we, we had been unbeaten for 17 games that season. We were on f- absolute fire. But as you rightly say, Andy Cole was out. And I think, I could be mistaken, but Scott Salas was injured as well. And mm-hmm. um, or he, w- he went off injured one or two. And to be honest, Keith, uh, that, that game, uh, thanks to you, mate, we, we started falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, and, and and I think at the time, Newcastle were sitting top of the league. Um, and I, th- I think Man United were maybe second at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a... It was a really important game, and and actually the, the the next game for United after that was um, was Barcelona away, when Barcelona absolutely hammered us four um, nil. Ah yes. And um, I was I was part of the squad that night, but I wasn't on the bench at all, even because of the foreign the the foreigner rule. Uh, yes. Because of, you know they 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 brought off um, Ryan Giggs when I came on in in the in the league game against Newcastle and. Um, he probably wasn't fully fit for the next game, but he was one of the you, you know three foreigners or, that was selected, and that was even a night when we played away in Barcelona where Peter Schmeichel was left out um, <laughs> because they had so many foreigners in the squad that yeah. Gary Walsh Gary Walsh played in goals, and nobody ever thought you, know, you used to always c- come to the, the European games. You used to always try and work out. Who would be who would be playing? Cantona was um, was suspended because um, of what happened when they played Galatasaray, and he and I threw the fan across the pitch or whatever it was. Oh but, yes. uh, yeah. But um, you used to always try and work out. And you go, well, well, Peter Schmeichel's an absolute cert. You know, he's definitely one of them. And then you try to work out who who the others might be, and you thought, well, Giggsy. And but then you look around, and you go, well, you've got Konchelskis, you've got um, you know Cantona when he is fit, you got Dennis Irwin, you got Brian McClare. Uh, Mark Hughes and um, Roy Keane, you know it was it was incredible the sort of you know the the foreigners that that he had and you know crazy that being from Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, Ireland, you were you you were considered a foreigner. You, <laughs> yeah, you know that was that was the crazy thing about it, and and I suppose that's that's the reason then because um, why Alex Ferguson seen the need to go out and get. An English striker because of that European rule, and, and Andy Cole was the one who fitted the bill. No doubt, and also I guess it ties into what we we're talking about earlier in terms of players 
from academies coming through. You know, if you've if you've got a rule that stipulates in European competition, you have you can only have three spaces in the team taken by non-English players, yeah. then you probably would. I mean, you would need to bring academy players through regularly in order to, you know, to, to maintain yeah. some form of challenge in Europe. So it all, what one thing feeds into another, doesn't it? Um, it's interesting you mentioned Eric Cantona there because it got me thinking about the, I mean, when you were, when you were coming through, the personalities in that dressing room at Man United, just absolutely huge. And it got me thinking about Roy Keane's arrival and obviously Keane has this reputation um, as being the kind of the big shot, demanding, you know, assertive. And, and I was wondering... When Keane arrived at Man U, very young, I mean, early 20s, I think he only had one one season in the top flight with, with Forrest, really, where, where he was excellent, obviously. Um, was he the, the kind of confident, assertive and demanding person that we see now from the off? Because, you know, I was bearing in mind the fact that that dressing room, he was a kid and he was joining hard characters. I mean, real hard characters. Cantona, Inns, Hugh, Schmeichel. What, what was he like? Yeah, I, I always had a great relationship with him. Um, I think he's absolutely brilliant as a pundit to watch because Agreed, you know yeah. he, he he just doesn't hold back, and you know you're going to get you know hundred percent truth from him. He's not going to sit in the fence whatsoever. But yeah, he, you know he's, he is coming into um, to a dress room, and you know you've got even Brian Robson is, is there at the time, um, Ince as we as we mentioned. But um, he was uh, he was just a fantastic you know player from the off. Um, you could see, you know, although he was very, very young, you, you know, you could see how how annoyed he could get in training if somebody just gave the ball away. And, you know, you, you get you get players who, who you know, train. And, and Mark Mark Hughes is, is the worst, probably one of the worst trainers I've ever seen. Um, he was so, so bad. Gary Pallister as well. But on a Saturday, you knew what you were going to get from them. But Roy Keane was one of those who just was... Trained exactly how he played, um, and you know the way he came through. Um, you know, show it sort of showed you how good a player he was because Paul Ince was a top top midfielder at that stage, and and Alex Ferguson let him go not long after, um, and Roy Keane was was sort of the main man then. Uh, but you know, he was a he was just a fantastic character, one a player that you know you. You didn't want to be on his team in a five-a-side in training because you give the ball away. You got an absolute rollicking. But uh, if you were actually against him, you know he would he would go through you no bother whatsoever too. So it was uh, it was one of those. But um, no, he was uh, he was a fantastic player. And, and I mean, going back to to when you talked about the the young players, you know, it was important to bring them through in terms of that that stage because of the European thing. I was I was really unfortunate because. Of, of the eight of us that all signed professional contracts on the same day, um, seven of them were English, and I was the only, you know, foreigner, so to speak. So they were always involved in those European games where, you know, I wasn't, I, I never got that sort of chance. So I, I pretty much missed out then. Um, and all the, all the boys, um, Beckham and, and Skulls, Nicky Pod, all those, you know, got their chance um, in the European games. Just, just a quick one on um, on Roy Keane, uh, Norman. You may recall when we got knocked out of the FA Cup by Forrest in 1991. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there. Yeah, well, Keane played as early as then, mate. He, he must have come through a lot earlier because he was he was the 1991 season when Forrest got the cup final. Uh, if you remember, Keane was up a height in the, as much as Gascoigne was in the cup final. Mm-hmm. Uh, some Something to do with the he, he couldn't get all his family and friends cup final tickets, believe it or not. Imagine that the biggest day of your career and, you, and you're worried about getting your mates in, you know. <laughs> um, but a little thing about that, um, 
the, the FA Cup game, um, when Newcastle were getting, I think we were getting beat 2 or 3 0 at the time, and he, he, he took objection to some abuse from Newcastle supporters, so he gave him the, the, the V sign. And Brian Clough dragged him off, gave him a clip on the touchline. So that's a, a true story. So he was, he was a work ticket from a young age. But just, just alluding a little bit to Keith, I mean, obviously you don't have to give too much away, but there was, in Roy Keane's book, he, um, he suggests there was a, a massive drinking culture at Man United at the time. And he also mentions um, when he first joined Man United, he was, he, I think, potentially stopping at, at an airport hotel. Yeah. And, and he says that a lot of the players used to go there to make the new lads welcome. But it could work both ways. It could have a great night out. Um, but a lot of supporters would get wind of it and go around and try and wind them up and, and you know tell them off for drinking when they should be professionals. Basically, were you were you part of that culture and, and, and you know what was it like drinking with these absolute superstars? Really? No, no I well I actually wasn't because you know I was still a, a young lad. I was still living in digs even when I when I left the club to join Newcastle. Um, you know, she you, you've got these sort of established stars who you know. It's such a big area, uh, Manchester, and then you've got players who live, you know, are dotted all about, you know. So we're, I'm I'm stuck in in digs, not far from the training ground. Um, so you had, I mean, you had players who, who who would have gone out with your likes, of, you know, Sharpie, Giggsy, you know, and, and on Saturdays at times would have been out with them. But uh, in terms of drinking cultures, you know, you end up. Before that, you know, you had the likes of Brian Robson and Paul yeah. McGrath and Norman Whiteside, and you know, their their um, drinking clubs on a Sunday or something used to be absolutely legendary, apparently. But um, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't party to that because you know I was still a young lad living in digs. Um, the only time that would have been socialising with the likes of the first team is is maybe when we had our Christmas day out. But you know, that, I mean that that. that I mean that's it's crazy in terms of you know the fans thinking that players are not allowed to to leave the house and go for a drink um you know you especially of it you know the players were always doing doing that when the time was was right you know it wasn't like you were doing it two days before a game or a day before a game you know you know some fans think that they sort of you know had the right to tell tell players that they couldn't go for a drink and you know, everyone's human and needs that release at some stage. And, you know, going for a drink and having bonding sessions at times is, is something that we did at Newcastle, you know, countless times during the sort of 95, 96 season. And it brought us all together. Um, and we used to maybe, we used to do that maybe every three weeks. And it could have been a Thursday night because we weren't playing to the following Monday. It could have been a Monday night. We weren't playing to the following Saturday. But we always, we always did it at the right time. Um, and I suppose we were we were quite fortunate because, you know, the team was was flying high, and and you know the fans aren't so bothered about that, um, you know. But if the team aren't doing doing as well, you know, I'm sure there would have been a lot more to say. But I think it was important that every single every single player had to go. Um, the coaching staff all went. The the medical staff, the kit man. The only people who didn't go was was Kevin Keegan. Um, Arthur Cox and Terry McDermott. So we had absolutely everybody. And yeah. you know, we, we used to go we used to always go for food first. We used to go to Uno's down in the quayside. And yeah. And then, and then if, if if you wanted to go home after that, you know, you're talking Peter Beardsley there as well, who didn't drink, but you know, as I say, everybody was there. But um if if you wanted to go home after that, you know, a lot of boys went home, the sort of younger ones, you know, would have stayed out longer and would have ended up in uh, you know, maybe Martha's bar and then 
obviously down the quayside to uh, to Julie's, which was was obviously the regular hunt. But um, you know, it it there was no problem again with it then. You know, as long as you knew you were doing it at the right time. And I always remember later in the season, about March time, we had arranged this night out, and and um, I think it was for a Thursday night. And we weren't planning to follow Monday, and 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 Kevin just you know he'd known about it all season that we we did it. You know, because nothing got past Kevin Keegan and, and certainly in Newcastle, you know, everybody sort of knew what you were up to. You, you know, it's, it is, you know, like a goldfish bowl at times, but um, all of a sudden he just stopped it and says he didn't want us doing it anymore. Um, so maybe uh, maybe that's the reason we uh, we didn't uh, follow through and win the league in the end. <laughs> Brilliant. Absolutely. It's just like it's like Romario, isn't it? Romario would basically say, you know, I need to go clubbing until five in the morning in order to play football at three o'clock on the Saturday <laughs> afternoon. Um, uh, I, I mean, you're right. It's all, it's all about bonding. Isn't it? It's in any walk of life, any any walk of life when you work in, in close proximity with, with people, you do perform better when you bond. And, you know, oh, football's yeah. no different. And obviously, obviously now, I guess, players are kind of, especially at the top level, micromanaged to within an inch of their life. The mm-hmm. media trained to to say exactly the right thing. And it's almost to the detriment of that, that real personalities coming yeah. through. And that's why, you know, you get certain players like, and I, I speak about him quite a lot, but Mikel Antonio at West Ham, you feel like you're actually seeing him when he's interviewed, the real person, as opposed yeah. to this kind of micromanaged player. And, and that's what it was like back then. You know, you, I th- and I think as fans as well, because you would see players out in Newcastle drinking and doing the things that you did in your spare time, you would feel that kind of bond. You, you felt yeah. close at the players, whereas now... I think young kids at the age of 11, 12, 13, or teenagers, young adults, that closeness, I guess it just doesn't, it might not be the case anymore because it's almost like footballers at the top level, level now are completely untouchable. 1996, you're walking to Julie's on a Monday night and there's half the Newcastle first team squad. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think um, with with Kevin Keegan, you know, he was pretty much of the, of the fact that, you know, this is the fans club. Um, that's why he encouraged... You know, open training sessions all the time, and you know, six and a half thousand people coming down, and and you know, when you're training pre-season and, and school holidays, and you know, the, the the place was just really thriving, and um, you, you did get that, you know, up close and personal with the players. Whereas now you can't you can't get near them. It's a bit like I was, I was, um, I was talking today at uh, at a thing, and um, you know, I, I spoke about you know playing for Northern Ireland, and and. With the journalists, you know, with Northern Ireland, we had, we had a great relationship with um, with the journalists with Northern Ireland. And after the game, if we're playing away in be it Ukraine, wherever it is, we used to go out with the journalists for a drink. Yeah. Uh, and we tried to sort of, you know, they stayed in the same hotel as us. And, and you got up, you got friendly with them and, and you knew that there was never going to be any stitching up, you know, because, you know, we all know what journalists can be like. But, you know, you get on a good relationship with them. Whereas we were sort of like thinking, you know, the press just don't get that chance with the England players. There's not a chance that they would be anywhere near them the way we are with the, with the press of, of Northern Ireland. Um, and that was the same sort of thing with, with Newcastle because the, 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 the fans, you know, got to see, you know, players outside of football. Uh, whereas, you know, they just don't get that chance now to get up close and personal with them. Speaking of uh, Northern Ireland, Keith, it was around about this time you had already made your debut, was that right? Against was it Portugal at home? Yeah, nineteen ninety four. Yeah, so so you'd you'd already made your island debut. You you, you were scoring against Newcastle, uh, and um, 
you, then you scored your was it your first goal? And I've I've seen it. I I, re, I remember it happening at the time, but I've watched it back. And what a bloody brilliant uh, first goal for your country, mate! Talk us through it. Yes, um, it was my second cap. You know, my first cap was was amazing. You know, seventh of September, nineteen ninety four, and on the seventh of September, two thousand and five. You know, eleven years later, we actually that was the day we beat England. Um, you know, so it's. It's a yeah. strange sort of, you know, <laughs> that, it, that it occurs like that. But, um, yeah, my second cap, my first cap, you know, we lost against Portugal yeah. um, 2-1. I know that was a, a really good Portuguese side with the likes of Figo and uh, Rui Costa and Paulo Sosa. You know, really, really good side. We lost them 2-1. But, you know, that, that entire campaign, we uh, we went through um, unbeaten away from home. Um <laughs> You know, incredible for a little country like Northern Ireland to actually do that. But, yep, the, the second minutes uh, in, in Austria, um, you know, a big, uh, a big stadium, uh, an Olympic stadium in Austria. And um, the ball sort of landed, flicked, or Ian Dye flicked it over his shoulder and I just caught it on the volley from the corner of the box and it, it rifled into the um, the top corner. And I, I remember coming back to, um, to Man United and um, Alex Ferguson, you know, talking about the goal, and he said, "Is any chance of you doing that for us?" And then it was maybe two weeks later, three, two maybe three weeks later, where I scored the goal against uh, against Newcastle, and I ended up uh, I ended up both goals were on match of the day uh, for goal of the month. Um, unfortunately, I didn't win it, but it was nice to sort of get two out of the you know out of the ten in the in the, in the same month. Fantastic. I tell you what, Keith. That's, it's great that we've uh, moved on to Northern Ireland because I, I want to give it a kind of brief discussion um, before we move to on your move to Newcastle. And it's great that you mentioned the Austria game there because obviously the goal was fantastic. And I remember I was at Gated College at the time, so I would have been ninety four September seventeen. Uh-huh. And I remember buying the uh, Daily Mirror newspaper and the report being in there in a picture of um, of, the, of the game. You know that you you striking the ball. And I'm almost certain that would have been the first time that I'd read of you in the the obvious George Best comparison. And and this this is what I'd like to to hear a little on is how did that feel at the time, given you were so young, and obviously Best is an integral part of Northern Irish football and and wider society history. Um, he's a hugely important cultural figure in in Northern Ireland, and and I guess. Is that something that you enjoyed? Is it something that weird on you? Is it something you even thought about? No, I, the, the thing about going to, to to Man United and from Northern Ireland, I mean, there's there's always been huge links with with um, Northern Ireland and Man United in terms of players, and you go back to to Harry Gregg, one of the Busby Babes, and then George Best and Sammy McElroy, um, Norman Whiteside, you know. So there's. There's been a lot of players who have come from Northern Ireland and, and, and played for, for Man United. And I think, you know, even Norman Whiteside got got labelled the, the next George Best and, you know, totally different players. Um, maybe the fact that I was sort of a similar type of player to what George was in terms of, a, you know, being a winger, liking to, to dribble with it. Um, you know, I obviously got the, the comparisons you know, as well. So I think that's just something that inevitably happens to to anybody who comes from Northern Ireland and, and goes across the water to, to Man United. Um it, it it did become a nickname. A lot of people still call me it. It's it's the nickname now is sort of bestie and it was actually Chris Sutton who uh who christened me it uh, when I went to Blackburn. Um right. 
I've been been known as bestie by by most people ever since. Um, but I think it's probably, I, you know, I probably tried to emulate him off the pitch more than I did on the pitch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, it's uh, you know, looking back, you know, George Best, one of the the, the greatest players that, that the game has ever seen and it's a big reason why I became a Man United fan because my, my dad became a Man United fan because of the George Best link being from Northern Ireland and, and, and going to Man United so um, you know as I mentioned before playing in a testimonial with him uh, although he was uh, slightly intoxicated when he came on as sub that day but um, you know just incredible to you know that just the sort of aura that, it, that he possessed you know in the dress room and all and you know, it's 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 like God walking into the dressing room when 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 George Best walks in, and you know, just uh, I know he had his demons, but um, I think everybody just loved loved um, George Best, the player. Um, you know, incredible how uh, how good he actually was. Absolutely, and still, obviously, one of the greatest quotes ever with uh, <laughs> wasting his money. And uh, that was that. It's that. That's that quote, isn't it? What does he say? Um, is it in the hotel when the the bloke in the hotel asks him where did it all go wrong? Where did wrong? it all go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, what, is he with Miss World and yes, <laughs> and, and and I think all the money's down on the bed because they've been to the casino and it's she's just sort of thrown it up in the air. You know, <laughs> that was it. That was the quote. Where did it all go wrong? I, I don't doubt you were in similar situations, mate. But we'll <laughs> I was. There was that. De- there was definitely no miss for it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll come to that. We'll come to that stage of your book a little bit later. I want to imagine. All right. But, uh... And also, if anyone anyone listening, um, we're not going to go into it here. But uh, Keith mentioned Chris Sutton briefly there, and um, it's worth reading the book alone just for just for the slating that Chris Sutton gets in it um, in the Blackburn. The Blackburn season. I won't go any further, but um, it pleased me greatly to uh, to read your words on Chris Sutton. And anyways, um, <laughs> well, well, we'll move on then to the move itself. Um, just, I guess, just talk us through how it, you know, the, the genesis of it, how it transpired, and um, and you know, I guess how it felt when you realised that you were moving at a time when you know you, you had started making waves it the ultimately the club of your dreams the club that you supported as a boy and you know as you've said before one of the biggest clubs in the world if not the biggest yeah um you know just after uh, after new year we, we had a league game uh, against coventry at um at old trafford and, and, I, and i played in it we won three nil and so you know i was making you know good strides in terms of you know, playing games for for the first team, but I, I still had Andre Konchalskis in front of me, um, who was who was a fantastic player. And our following game was Sheffield United away in the cup, and Andre had Andre had had flu. There was a few other people sort of struggling as well. Um, so I remember going to the game, thinking, "Well, I have a, I have a great chance of, of of playing here tonight again." And so the team was announced, subs were announced, and and I wasn't involved and. Uh, we got to the ground and Alex Ferguson, you know, just pulled me aside and he, and he just, the only thing he said was, look, um, I'm in for this English striker at Newcastle. You know, no, no names mentioned, but he obviously, you know, didn't take a brain <laughs> surgeon to work <laughs> out. <It> was, <laughs> didn't take a brain surgeon to work out. It was Andy Cole. He said, but the only way the deal is going to happen is if you go the other way. Um, and he, he sort of explained that because of, you know, being from Northern Ireland, um, 
you know, it was it was only it was only after later on in, in my life that I realized that that Kevin Keegan had, you know, made an inquiry for me long before this, um, long before any talk of Andy Cole was mentioned and, and Alex Ferguson, you know, turned that down. Um, so uh, it was one of them where I'm going to the game thinking I have a chance of playing and then all of a sudden within a conversation with Alex Ferguson, I'm thinking about leaving the club. But he said to me, um, you know, watch the game, have a think and, and just tell me what you want to do. But, you know, there was no no, no pressure on me whatsoever. Um, you know, I could have turned to move down. But I remember sitting beside Ben Thornley and I was Alex Ferguson had told me not to say anything. So, you know, I didn't actually, you know, mention. But I, I just... You know, quite uh, quite cutely turned the uh, conversation with Ben uh, round to, to Newcastle, talking about Newcastle and you know what a, what a, what he he made of them and that, and you know he would have just been unbeknown to the way I was sort of asking asking the questions, but you know he had nothing nothing good nothing but good to to say about um, Newcastle. So I made I made up my mind because you know I I always go back to that game when I remember the, the fans with that one 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 game when Andy Cole scored and you know I thought to myself that you know this is a great opportunity for me to go to a club a Premier League club um managed by you know incredible person in in, in uh, Kevin Keegan. So you know after the game I went to the manager and, and says yeah but I would like to go and talk to um Talked to Newcastle. Um, I remember before that, I spoke to Brian McClare, Brian Robson, spoke to Steve Bruce. Uh, Steve Bruce in particular was was one who said, "Oh, you need to go do it." You know, he was uh, he was slightly envious, you know, <laughs> in, in a way. Although he's at Man United, and but he is a Geordie, um, you know, and he was slightly envious that I was getting the chance to to go and play for Newcastle. Um, so what happened then? We went to um, we went to a hotel um, in in Sheffield. The rest of the players um, got on the coach and, and went home, and we saw Alex Ferguson got a car to uh, to take us to to a hotel where Freddie Fletcher, Freddie Shepherd, and, and Kevin Keegan, who had been at the game, um, were waiting. Um, so we got to the hotel, and uh, you know by then it's around about midnight, and you know this is pre mobile phones. So you know on the on the phone at, in the hotel, um, Alex Ferguson said to me, "Get your mum on the phone." So rang my mum and. Uh, she came on the phone. She was, you know, maybe a little bit worried that the phone was ringing sort of so late at night. Um, you know, so um, Alex Ferguson came on the phone, explained the situation. Um, she trusted him. She said, "As long as Keith's happy, I'm happy." Uh, but Alex Ferguson then mentioned that, I'd, and that, well, mom obviously knew that I'd never had an agent, but you know, could could he act as my agent um, in the in the negotiations? So she was very much happy with that. So. Um, I spoke to Kevin Keegan, and honestly, it was literally thirty seconds. And you know, it it only took ten seconds of those thirty to to sell the club to me. You know, that is that is what a character he actually is. How incredible, um, how he can sort of do that. Um, and I know with Rob Lee, um, who Rob Lee turned down Middlesbrough because he thought it was too far north, but Kevin Keegan talked him <laughs> into go, to going to Newcastle. You know, so. Um, he's incredible, uh, incredible person. Um, so um, we then went in and had the negotiations. Alex Ferguson told me to, to say absolutely nothing. Um, and at the time, we we we'd all signed contracts. We were on two hundred and fifty pound a week. We weren't on big money. And I, Alex Ferguson was, you know, a great believer in that. That you know, we were we were still making our way in the game. And until you 
became that sort of regular first team, first teamer, and you're playing every week. That you know you you don't go on to the the higher end money. And um, so as I said, we were all on two hundred and fifty pound a week. The the eight of us that had signed professional forms. Um, but I remember sitting there and uh, I sort of you know a sh- shy nineteen year old and I'm sort of head down sitting at this round table and Alex Ferguson's got a a notepad and pen and all out and he's writing things down and. All of a sudden, he turned around, turned around and he says, look, well, Keith's on £600 a week at the minute. We want you to double it. And I sort of, when I when I heard this, I sort of, you know, looked up so I did. And uh, he sort of gave me this look across the table as if to say, don't you say a word here. And um, Newcastle agreed to it straight away. You know, so that's a, that's how easy the negotiations went. You know, Alex Ferguson obviously told a, a little white lie, but, you know, not that I was bothered about that because he was obviously just trying to do his best for me. And, you know, I went up the next day and uh, and and signed. Um, you know, and that was the that was the same day then that uh, or or sorry evening that um, Kevin Keegan. Everyone will remember him on the steps. And um, I think you know people were some people who maybe weren't that aware of me. You know, were maybe wondering was I a sort of direct replacement for Andy Cole? You know, and that was obviously never going to be. Kevin Keegan had a long term plan, and and that's when it became apparent in the summer you know what that he had his sights obviously in Les Ferdinand and brought Les in and we, we know how good Les was. Um, you know, so I think with uh, with the way managers are, you know, there's nobody like Kevin Keegan because I, I, I don't know of another manager in the game who would have come out and stood on steps talking to fans and appeasing them really because by the end of the conversation it was a it was a case of Kevin Keegan said, you need to give me the opportunity to take this club forward and this is the way I see it. And by the end of it, the, the fans agreed with him. They, 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 they trusted him and you just have to see what happened then because this was January time. You know, the following the following season, we were nearly Premiership champions. Um, so, you know, he was uh, he was right in what, what he said, but it's incredible how, how much faith you know the the Newcastle public had in Kevin Keegan um, as a manager, and they had every right to do so because, you know, as I mentioned before, it, he 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 made it that it was the fans' club, um, and how important the fans were to the club. It's uh, fascinating hearing that, Keith, because at the time, I mean, I was r- roughly Norman's age, sixteen, seventeen. Absolutely devastated, lose Andy Cole. Absolutely devastated. But but when you look at the facts and you look at that period of time, there was. There was rumours Cole wasn't happy. There was rumours mm-hmm. that his um, there was rumours that his application wasn't right in training. There was rumours of bust ups for Kevin Keegan, which let's be honest, you you, you don't do. Um, uh, and when you look at the actual statistics, we had won two win uh, two games in ten since uh, that defeated Old Trafford. Uh, we had dropped from fifth, uh, sorry, from first to fifth. We had been knocked out of Europe. We had been knocked out of the League Cup at home to Manchester City. Um, and Cole essentially hadn't scored in around about nine or ten games. So. Mm-hmm. You understand that Keegan probably looked at it and probably thought, look, I need to start building for next season and we'll see how we'll get on this season. Um, you, you, from a supporter's perspective, it was probably the first major sort of issues Kevin Keegan had as manager at Newcastle, especially when he had, as you rightly see, he had to go on the uh, on the Millburn stand steps and explain his actions. But but again, as you rightly say, we had we had drew with um, at home to Blackburn in the Cup calls last game before uh, before the yeah. transfer. And the, the the following the replay, 
Um, I remember being down there and um, there was there was a talk of Andy Cole had actually travelled over to Ewood Park to say his farewells to the players because he didn't have a chance to do well, that. Well, he actually he actually did because I right. um, I I was um, I was sat on the bench. I was I was um, I wasn't involved that night, uh, but I was I was there um, for that game um, against uh, Blackburn. Yeah, uh, I think it was Mark Holliger got the uh, got the winner. That's right. Yeah. Um, but um, I remember being in the hotel and and um, Andy Cole coming into the hotel to, to say you know cheerio to to the uh, to the boys. Um, so yeah, it was a it was you know a great night that night because nobody sort of thought with us with Newcastle having sold Andy Cole that you know we had a chance of uh, of um, beating Blackburn that night and you know that was the season Blackburn went on to actually win the Premiership so they were flying high as well. Well, well, this is it. It, it. It's it's fascinating because Keegan's obviously put a hell of a lot of faith into you and your ability. Because let's be honest, Rule Fox was the number one uh, right right hand side. Well, we'll call him a winger, stroke midfielder. Uh-huh. But you know, at that point, you had you had left Man United, and Andrea Kinchelskis was in front of you, and you were coming to Newcastle, and Rule Fox was. It, 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 from my point of view, he was in front of you. Yeah. Were, were you confident in your own ability? Did you think you stood a better chance at Newcastle than at Man United at that point? I, th- I think you have to be confident in your own ability. Um, you know, I didn't think, you know, because because £7 million back then was, was you know, such a such a lot of money. You know, it was a British transfer record and, you know, to be involved in that transfer was it was a huge thing. But it was it was quite easy for me because nobody... You know, I was I was sort of classed as as the make weight in the day, so nobody was expecting probably too much. Um, so the whole pressure was probably on Andy Cole, you know, rather rather than myself. And it meant then that I was able to, you know, quite fortunately hit the ground running. I remember my home debut for, for against Wimbledon, and uh, I remember it was uh, the first time I got the ball. It was about a minute or so gone, and I just, you know, knocked it out of my feet and just. You know, legged it, um, and it was the first time the sort of fans had really seen, you know, that I had a bit of pace about me and how direct I was. So, you know, I think that was important for me that you know, with it being such a such a big move in terms of you know it, the size of the transfer and 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 you know Newcastle losing Andy Cole, I think it was very important for me to make sure that I uh, that I hit the ground running. And as you mentioned, Rule Fox was there. Rule moved to the to the left wing. Um, and on you know many occasions, um, and I played on the right, so I think um, Will Fox was happy enough to do that. Um, and to be fair, he didn't really last too much longer into the into the next season before he was away to um, to Tottenham. That's right, and I tell you what, that is an absolutely fantastic place to leave this part um, because we can move on to your Newcastle career in part two. So mm-hmm. thank you, gents. What I will say is the night that Keegan was on the steps. One of my overriding and overwhelming memories is the turtleneck that he was wearing. And I just thought, <laughs> there, aren't many people, there aren't many people in the world who can pull off a turtleneck. <laughs> yeah, a, be- a beige one too. Beautiful one, absolutely. Yep. I mean, that, that's, that should be, if there's ever a proper Newcastle United Museum, that ought to be in there, in a, <laughs> in a glass case. Um, then, then again, Norman, before we do finish, I have got a, a nice picture of um, Keith in the hotel. Um, wearing a fetchy jumper as well. 
which, oh, really? which, which looked about 20 times too big for him, I'll be honest. Um, because, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was the style back then. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know whether to release that, but we could blackmail him uh, normally later on. <laughs> I don't want to say it. That's the picture that I'm using for this podcast without a shadow of a Gentlemen, thank you ever so much. That was fascinating. Listeners, hope you've enjoyed it. We will definitely be doing a part two. We're hopefully going to put up four parts. Um, if I had it my way, this would be a 50-parter because, as I say, having, having read the book, there is so much to discuss. And one story in particular with Gary Flitcroft had me rolling around on the floor. Um, so uh, we'll hopefully get to that at some point. But uh, as I say, thank you, listeners. Thank you, lads. And we will speak to you very shortly. Cheers. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens. And that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com